Welcome to Neuromovement Revolution with Anat Benyel, where you will discover breakthrough possibilities for your life through the brain's power to change. We're so happy that you can join us in making the impossible possible. Welcome to Neuromovement Revolution podcast. This is our 45th podcast, and we have an amazing guest with us today. Uh, her name is Linda Graham, and she's a friend, and she is a, a, a marriage family therapist that is a highly experienced psychotherapist and mindful self-compassion teacher in the San Francisco Bay Area. Linda integrates mo- modern neuroscience, mindfulness, and relational psychology in her national and international trainings. She's the author of Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster, and the award-winning Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being. She also has 10 years of weekly resources for recovering resilience that are archived at lindagraham-mft.net, and we will have that information also Uh, on our website uh, later. So this is our second podcast with Linda. And the topic here is how to develop resilience and well-being uh, in the face of great challenges. And a bit more specifically, uh, how to recover for, for what was for you a trauma experience or for us. And as we proceed, I would also like to focus it on both the parent of a child with special need and the um, child themselves that very often have been traumatized medically or through interventions and therapies, you know, talking to adult adults with cerebral palsy and they talk about mm-hmm. what their childhood was like is awful so often and very traumatizing. So, but the child, when they're little, they usually can't express it. They can, best they can do is cry or shut down. So Linda, welcome back to the second podcast and tell us, tell us what about the possible tools for people, how to develop resilience and how to, go into the recovery, which I think is the same process as developing resilience and well-being. So resilience is seen as the capacity or series of capacities that allow people to cope with the challenges and crises of their lives and bounce back from any adversity, any stress, any trauma. And so resilience, it's innate in the brain and it can be trained and learned and developed. So yes, we have experiential tools that will help us develop resilience. In the face of trauma, what is really helpful here is besides trauma therapy, and there are many excellent trauma therapies now that help people cope with a specific trauma or a series of traumas or a lifetime of traumas, is the research that's been done in the last 30 years or so in post-traumatic growth because the researchers have found that 
almost regardless of the severity of the external trauma or stressor, more than half people can recover from trauma. And the average number of traumas of their research subjects was eight. So people are recovering from multiple traumas. And so I've put together a list of five factors that help people use trauma as an opportunity to grow and to recover their resilience and recover their well-being. And just so very briefly, the first one is acceptance of reality. That is the first step. And that's often the hardest. But to accept this is what has happened or this is what keeps happening and just acknowledging the reality of the situation and the consequences. And so mindfulness and self-compassion practice can be very, very helpful there. The second one is resourcing with people. And that might not only be a team of people that are helping the child, but a team of people that can help the parents be compassionate companions for those parents and be able to hear the story, no judgment, no need to push any faster, no need to explain or justify, just receiving and accepting the difficulty and people feel held and understood and not judged. So resourcing with positive people is the second step. The third step is resourcing with the with the positive, which we talked about briefly in the 44th podcast, about finding moments of joy or gratitude or kindness or compassion or serenity, even in the midst of difficulty, because those moments when they're amplified will shift the functioning of the brain. The fourth one is beginning to find the gift in the mistake, the silver lining, the lessons to be learned. Any possible good or right that could come out of the difficulty or the wrong. And that's essential to be able to see this event, not as one monolithic catastrophe, but that that there was a before, a during, and an after, that there are elements within it that still can lead to learning and growth. And that's a huge discipline, but it's essential to be able to find the learning, the meaning, the lessons learned. Um, and part of, well, the fifth step then would be creating a coherent narrative. And, and this is basically a journaling technique because journaling allows us to get a little distance, a little emotional distance from the events. Um, but answering specific prompts that help us come into a different relationship to the trauma um, and again, starting with, this is what happened. <laughs> this is what happened. And here's the consequences. But then this is what I've done to cope with that trauma. These are all the tools, all the resources, all the practices, all the people that I've used to cope with this particular trauma and taking credit, honoring what we've done so far to cope with the trauma. And then what would I do now if I could do this differently? Or based on what I've been learning, what else could I do now? Because usually there is learning about how to cope with the trauma, and we want to honor that. And then what are the lessons I've learned? What new meaning or purpose have I found? What's any possible growth that has come out of this experience? And so claiming anything going in a positive direction. And that's the new strengths, new connections with people, 
new, a deepening spiritual faith, new opportunities we never would have thought of before. And the last step is, this is what I appreciate about my life because of the trauma, mm-hmm. not in spite of it. Because of it. That's a huge hurdle for people to get through. But that indicates a kind of acceptance and integration of the trauma into the ongoing life so that the trauma has its place in the story, but it's not the whole story and it doesn't have to determine the rest of the story. So these are tools people can use to cope with and recover from a trauma. And I'll, I have another idea, but I'll wait for you to have your comments and not in. Yeah. But but you're going to remember your idea. Yeah, I will. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So first of all, it's just beautiful. And I think it was the third step that, um, that reminded me that I had the number of parents. And I remember the first time I heard it, it was really foreign to me. I was in my 20s, started working with kids. And one of the parents, after I worked with them for a little while, for I don't know, a few months, and the kid was improving, but they said, I am now, not that I would have chosen this to happen to my child, but I am now really grateful for it having happened because I would have never learned and grown and become the human that I'm now. Exactly. So, yeah. So, so, and I remember the first time I heard it, it's like, I, I was a hundred percent committed to do everything I can to help the child, but it was like, I never expected that experience. It was foreign to me. Mm-hmm. I expected the parent to, fight with reality to reject to to yeah so so that that was one thing i wanted to say about what you said and but the first one when you said to accept it i don't know quite i don't have a the it clear in my mind but i want to bring the with parents uh, with children with special needs Oftentimes, an element, a big element plays in the whole dynamics is guilt, even totally irrational guilt, uh, you know, almost like f- fantasy guilt, right? The mm-hmm. sense of guilt, which I, I understand that is, um, can often be a mechanism of trying to get a sense of some control, actually, to mm-hmm. reduce anxiety. How would you say, because when you say accept and so on, but if there's guilt and, 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 and it could get in the way, I think, big time. Well, the purpose of guilt in the human psyche is to get people to take responsibility for their behavior. Yes. That's the purpose of guilt, is to help us take responsibility for our behavior so we can make changes and we can make amends. And so... When people feel guilty, that's a sign that they know maybe they could have done something different or they could try something different or they could try something more. It's taking responsibility. Yes, I feel guilty because I want to do everything I can to take care of my child and take care of this situation. So shifting into from fault to responsibility. Mm. One of the things about trauma, one of the um, quotations famous in the field is that 
bad things happen to good people. And accepting that, taking responsibility for bad things happen to good people. I am a good person. I'm trying to do my best. So I take responsibility for what I can do from here on. So moving from shame, blame, guilt, fault to responsibility, which is what's empowering. Now I can take action to do what I can do. And how, 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 does, how does one do it if they're, you know, they, they are immersed in it or, or encountering the child and seeing, you know, I see children, sometimes it's genetic situations that whatever. And, you know, our in and our out, it's kind of like you, you, you are with the enormous challenge. So, uh, so if, if the response or part of the response of the parent is guilt, do you have anything in, in the way you work with resilience that can free people from that? Because sometimes people just feel stuck there. So very often I teach mindfulness and compassion are foundational practices for resilience. They are foundational for our resilience because mindfulness allows us to see clearly what's happening and our reactions to what's happening. And the compassion allows us to see that without guilt or shame or blame or judgment, just accepting this is what's happening. This is how I'm reacting to what's happening and opening up the space where it's possible to discern what wise action would be. Now, I teach a tool a lot. It sounds very simple, but it can be very, very powerful. And that is you change every should to a could. I mean, that works in the English language. You change every should to a could. Because should implies demand and expectation and performance, and it leads to guilt when we fail to accomplish that. But could opens us up to possibility, to opportunity. And when parents can shift from I should or I should have, to I could, then they're on the road to, okay, what can I do now? What are the opportunities or the possibilities now? So shifting from that contracted demand place, even our expectations of what kind of parent I should be, to could, to the possibilities now. And that's the key to being resilient is to, I mean... When we practice any of these practices of being more positive, being more open, being more curious, that leads to resilience. That's the direct measurable cause and effect outcome is resilience. So it is really important to shift to that could, to shift to possibility, to Mm -hmm. increase our resilience. Now, that will lead into the other thing I want to mention. So, again, anytime you want to say something, and then I have one more. No, me, I have no problem. (laughs) (laughs) So, there is a shift in the field beyond post traumatic growth, which is about developing a resilience mindset. It's developing resilience ahead of time so that you can cope with whatever is about to happen. And that's coming from the research on stress. And on coping with failure, this is Carol Dweck at Columbia, or she was at Columbia when she did the research, and Kelly McGonigal at Stanford, about developing a growth mindset. That's Carol's term, 
resilience mindset is my term. But Kelly has written in her book, The Upside of Stress, Why Stress is Good for You and How to Get Good at It, that resilience is not about avoiding failure, avoiding difficulty, avoiding catastrophe. It's developing the mindset that allows us to use those catastrophes as a cue, as a cue to learn, to grow, to adapt, to become more flexible. And when we look at any disaster, any disappointment or a difficulty as a cue, how can I grow from this? What lessons can I learn as a human being from this? Then we have a completely different approach to the catastrophe. And it isn't just being a victim. We're empowering ourselves to learn. It isn't just, oh, this bad thing happened. Well, what good can I find in this bad thing? It's, it's a paradigm shift, really in how we cope with catastrophe and difficulty. So the phrase is an AFCO, another freaking growth opportunity. <laughs> and we look for those in, in every situation. What is, what's the possible learning here? What's the possible strengthening or growing from this? Like your parent would say, you know, I've learned so much from this experience. So to have that as a mindset is a radical shift in how we approach these problems, but it also opens up all of our powers to be able to deal with those problems. Yeah. Oh, this is just so wonderful. I mean, I'm taking notes as you talk because I think, oh, I'd like to bring this, I'd like to bring that. And so first of all, <clears throat> a, I'm just saying shortly about my work. I live in the world of possibilities. I know there are possibilities. I might know what they are I might not know what they are, but I know they're mm-hmm. always there. Oh. Excuse me. <clears throat> and and one of the really terrible situations in terms of emotional and stress and trauma is the sense of finality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that comes in the diagnosis of your cell like having a stroke and somebody wakes up from the stroke and they know that they're not the person they were before they got the stroke you know and or if a child and they have they I don't know they can't move or whatever genetic sometimes they you see it right at birth signs very often it takes a little while to discover something is not quite right and and then there is the sense of finality. And the way I, I'm just associating, when I started working with children, I was not trained to work with children. I was trained mm-hmm. by Dr. Feldenkrais to work, to do his work. And then I evolved it, you know, to the neural movement stuff. But, but the thing is that, that um, uh, I would sit and listen to parents telling me that, that they went to the doctor and the doctor said, you, you know, they will never walk or they will never this or, you know, the initial child I worked with that I worked over a period of 20 years. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. It's Elizabeth. They said two top neuropediatricians said to put the child away, to put her in an institution because she will never do anything. And what spontaneously, when I heard it, I would look at the parent, I'd look at the child, you know, and I'd go like, says who? they have no way of knowing that. Now, I understand that under the typical interventions, and they've seen a few cases like that, so they can predict 
And they were right, perhaps, in terms of their projections forward, given what they were going to do with the child or not do with the child or with the the stroke patient or with whoever it is that they're working with. And you, of course, emotional stuff and and just regular life stuff that can be very stressful. Mm -hmm. Now we're all living in this enormous shift Mm -hmm. in tectonic changes and 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 un, unknown future and all that's in the pandemic mm-hmm. you know it's, it's very demanding so the possibilities it's kind of the the and I, so i'd say says who and then any everything is free to check out so you as you as you're speaking i'm thinking about how where we look for the possibilities and there are possibilities in technology and medical intervention, but there are even more possibilities in the human brain and there are more possibilities in the human heart. And so you and I both work with the brain and with the heart, and that's where the possibilities are for real growth and real transformation. I I, I love you saying it. I never, never thought of it in the, I mean, of course I'm in that, in that lake swimming all the time but uh, but the, the the possibilities in the brain and the heart we're just scratching the surface we are infants in the beginning of the revolution right because just i mean 30 years ago when i started doing this work and i said to people it's the brain hello it's the brain i would just have people staring at me you know politely but it was like i was speaking a different language so right, you were yeah, that's true too. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So I love it that you said the the the, the quadrillion connections or whatever it's called. I mean, this enormous number of connections, and that it's never ends. There's always the possibility for more connections. That's right. And for more, you know, complexity that allows for things to be done. The same thing in a different way. Right. You can learn to stand differently from anybody else based of how your body is. Mm-hmm. You know, this is always the case. So this is beautiful. And um, and I love the distinction of, of kind of becoming a more resilient person mm-hmm. in general and having the tools to deal when stuff happens. What, what's important about that is not only can people become more resilient, there are many tools, many practices, many exercises, but they learn that they can become yes. more resilient. And that supports resilience right there. Absolutely. You know, you, we, you said it earlier in terms of the brain and the way I say it, we learn to do things, but one of the learning is we learn to learn. That means we actually experience and then be able to guide ourselves to upgrade the quality with which our brain works. The actual, the engine upgrades itself and it upgrades itself. I mean, all biological systems can do it. Like the liver can work worse or better. The heart can work better or worse. The brain has the most potency to self-upgrade, to Mm -hmm. self-organize and self-upgrade. And within that place, there are possibilities that don't exist in a lower place. And that we can't even imagine until we venture into that territory. Yeah, and the, and the brain won't get there spontaneously. It need, anyway, however it works. So, so um, 
the so in terms i'm just looking at the questions here talk about a little bit what the difference is between external and internal stressors well most of the time trauma therapy has focused on the external stressors a car accident or being in a prisoner of war camp or you know losing a job the external stressors but we also have internal stressors we have messages that we tell ourselves about how capable we are of coping or not and we can we have signal anxiety that goes off in the body anytime we face something new so we can have internal messages about the severity of those external stressors and our capacity to cope with them or not and so strengthening people's sense of self as a resilient person and their self-talk messages about themselves moving from a, a fixed or failure mindset to a growth or resilience mindset that's an important part of being resilient whatever the external stressor is that we're having to meet it's just our own um, my colleague Frankie Perez says how you respond to the issue is the issue And that's just really true for dealing with any kind of trauma. It's our own response that determines how well that's going to go. So really paying attention to people's cultivating and owning their capacities to be resilient. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's like people say, oh, this person will get upset with having a hangnail, you know, when <laughs> you look at that. Uh, and, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a very, very clear And the, if you can just say a few words about habituating into reacting with anxiety and stress. So we, we, learn, okay, go ahead. we learn to react to life experience through our experience. And, very, and you know, the whole organism is oriented towards safety and protection, towards survival. And so we will often learn practices for our survival that keep us alive, but they block us learning any other practices. We have a few set of conditioned patterns that have become habits, and we always respond that way. The brain will do what it's easiest to do, so it will follow a habit. And to, in order to change those habits, we have to intentionally choose new experiences that will create new habits in the brain. Eventually they will become good habits and we'll be able to follow them. But we have to intentionally choose to create those new habits. So, you know, the human brain is conditioned by experience. We can have new conditioning, new experiences. We can have reconditioning, which is using positive experiences to rewire the negative experiences and deconditioning, which is simply using the default network of the brain to play and imagine and intuit and come up with different insights, different paths. So there's ways that we work with the brain to create new patterns that will be more resilient and lead to more well-being. It's like when I say clients like to learn how their brain works, it gives them a sense of empowerment to be able to do that. So it, it, the two things that I want to ask. One is to give an example of how one can do it through self-talk, you know, like give examples of self-talk that is counterproductive and self-talk that is, is, can replace the self-talk that diminishes resilience. So the tricky thing 
about self-talk is that really when we want to change brain functioning and we want to rewire our old patterns, we need to light up all the networks that, that constellate that pattern. So it isn't just our words. It's our visual memories and images, and it's our emotions, and it's our body sensations. And our self-talk incorporates all of those in a network. So in order to do the rewiring, we're actually conjuring up a positive experience at all of those levels. The words that express it are one part of it. So if I'm wanting to rewire like your parent who feels guilty and they have a memory of themselves doing something that makes them feel guilty and they have the emotions around that and they feel those emotions somewhere in their body and they have their negative self-talk and we light up all of that. So what do they do? But then, then we create or evoke a positive counter to that which is them feeling like they're empowered and they're acting well and they're doing the right thing and and they feel that in their body and they listen to those words that they tell themselves so that they have maybe a guilt memory and they have a positive empowered memory. And if they can hold them in their awareness at the same time, that's fine. But usually it's toggling back and forth. As long as the positive is more is stronger, more active, more vital eventually the negative memory will fade away. It's not that you forget it exactly, but it just doesn't have the same oomph or the same charge. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. So uh, before we close, two things, if there's like one or two resources that you can mention for people who want to do at home, (laughs) enhancing their resilience and the growth and and all that stuff well thank you Anat. but frankly my book resilience has 133 exercises in it and they're organized to make it streamlined to you so they're organized by this is just barely a wobble no big deal this is a serious heartache or struggle this is the trauma of too much so the exercises are geared to those levels And they're also organized by somatic body-based tools, emotional regulation tools, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to other people, and how we reflect, how we use our mindfulness. And so there's tools that can be adapted to almost any given situation, and and it's fairly easy to use. So I I want to second this because I know this book, (laughs) and it's just an amazing, amazing feat of phenomenal collection of resources and organized just the way you said, which is so incredible. Mm -hmm. And is there something you want to say to the listeners, kind of like to maybe to inspire them or anything you want to say in conclusion? What I would say is to remember that resilience, coping with difficulty, is our birthright. It's innate in our brain. And the capacities to be resilient, to cope well, can be learned and trained and cultivated. And the important thing is to know that we can do that. We can do that. That's what I would leave people with. Thank you so, so much, Linda. I mean, I'm 
inspired and re-inspired every time you speak. So thank you so very much. Thank you for having me, Anat. You know, I hear us thinking new thoughts or putting two things together in a new way. And that's what's always exciting about working with you. But that's what's exciting about opening ourselves to these difficult topics mm-hmm. and exploring together and learning what we didn't know yet. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, rem- I was thinking about our walks a bunch of years back. And boy, oh, boy, I'm <laughs> you. you have done enormous path and work yeah i mean development a wonderful body of knowledge so thank you so very much as is yours i mean you know i've used some of your exercises in my trainings because they work so acknowledging your pioneering work as well because neuro movement is revolutionary and i bow to that thank you thank you lots of love lots of love Thank you for joining us on Neuro Movement Revolution with Anab Benyel. You will find all of our podcasts and additional resources on our website at www.anatbenyelmethod.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We look forward to seeing you online for our next Neuro Movement Revolution.